0: Welcome back to OzBiz Live from our Brangaroo studios. This is the 2024 kickoff for the call um, for this new year. 10 stocks picked by you. We're on at the same time every single weekday afternoon. I put those 10 stocks to our expert panel. We do it all in one hour. It's fast and furious, we're always informative and entertaining uh and entertainment with a capital e describes our first panel on 2024 daniel ortizzi from stock doctor daniel how are you happy new year
2: yeah, good, Koshi. Good to be here. It's more, bit more of a casual vibe for me today. So, it's we like it. Way to start up. A, a
0: bit of stubble there. You're looking uh, <laughs> very metrosexual, Scott Phillips from the Motley Fool. Wish he could have st- stubble, particularly on top like me.
1: But we dip out. Yes. How are you, mate? Happy New Year. Good day, mate. And to you too. Thank you, mate. Great to be back with you. Yes, no uh, no, no stubble on top, unfortunately. I had heard to put the bag of fruit on for, for this call. But what better way to kick off the year, as you say, mate, than with the call?
0: Yeah. Um, look, uh, of course, I follow you on social media. You went out bush with your son camping. Yes. Um, when you go away like that, do you have a good look around? Um, And think, oh, well, these Bureau of Meteorology uh, boffins (laughs) saying we were headed for a drought doesn't look like a drought over summer anywhere. And does that affect your thinking in terms of investing, particularly ag, ag stocks and the like?
1: Yeah, that is such a great question mate um you know it's funny because i I have tempted to, to feel the same way and yet you see some of the farm reports with farmers still effectively giving away sheep in particular um, because they don't have enough confidence in the weather that's coming to basically feed the uh, feed the flock and so you've got to basically thin out things you can't sell them because no one else wants to buy them either for exactly the same reason so you kind of got this two-stage thing going on and of course it's different in different parts of the country I would I would love I I've <laughs> drawn to kind of agricultural investments I don't have any I haven't made any Largely because they tend not to be great investments generally. That being said, if you can kind of pick the upswing, a bit like airlines, if you can kind of pick the upswing, maybe things are in, in a pretty good place. I'm kind of a bit, I'm not a contrarian investor by nature, but I do look for those times when the market hates it, bottom of the cycle, you know, the last of the true believers, the capitulation trades. And that's kind of the time if you are a a medium, long-term investor and you're looking for that sort of opportunity, they're the points of time and the prices at which you want to buy. Uh, Fascinating too, by the way, to see uh, both Gina and Twiggy uh, increasing their land holdings or talking about reportedly increasing land holdings through uh, through AA Co., Twiggy's Mm. buying up more of that. And S. Kidman & Co., which Gina owns, uh, in a consortium with a Chinese investor, also apparently increasing its land holdings. So, uh, if the if the billionaires are to be followed, they probably should be given what they've done so far. Yeah. Uh, they're certainly not shy about agriculture at the moment.
0: Yeah, Twiggy added what one percent. Uh, of his Mm -hmm. holding in AA Co over over that quiet December break. Of course, Gina uh, putting a lot into um, uh, into Kidman uh, with Mr Mm -hmm. Gui who's a big supporter of uh, the Port Adelaide Football Club. Um, So I know (laughs) know a bit about the ownership of Kidman. Um, It is interesting. Daniel, when you go on holidays... Jib, you know, we all go and look in the real estate windows, agents windows, don't we and go, gee, we love this place, should we buy it? Um, but does it give you a sense away from the data that we get bombarded every day that sort of summer holidays are a way to, to get the boots on the ground, if you like?
2: Yeah, it's always a risk, isn't it, Koshi? Trying to get some empirical evidence because the population size is, is very skewed. So I'm on the peninsula at the moment, and uh, you know everything in terms of a cost of living crisis and and slowing retail retail spending. You know that's that's not the case here at all. It's 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 all systems go. Everyone's having a good time. So you, you have to be a bit cautious about yes. doing that at times because you, you don't want to extrapolate that. But in terms of what we're seeing in travel, even empirically from the airports, um, seeing you know things on social media about photographs and delays and the, and the sheer amount of volume going through there, you know, that's one sector I think is perhaps a little bit overlooked at the moment in terms of travel Um, being sold down pretty significantly. And yet, you know, there's still a significant amount of inbound travel from overseas, particularly Asia, and uh, the Australians as well. Very heavy on their travel these holidays.
0: Yep, absolutely. It is interesting. All right, and and a big week of data coming up: retail sales figures, uh, November monthly CPI. So we're uh, coming with a rush after the Bureau of Stats sort of seem to have three weeks off. Um, let's start, let's let's take a look at the stocks. We're going to look this half hour: Domain, uh, Magellan, uh, the beta share Australian Dividend Harvester Fund. I love the name. Um, Telstra and Johns Ling. But um, on a fairly quiet uh, Monday, I thought we'd take a look at a, a health stock, Biome Australia. Um, the company announced an increase in its full-year revenue guidance. Um, FY24 revenue target is being revised, $12.5 million. That's up from $11.5 million. Uh, the MD says that he expects to exceed FY24 target by million dollars or 8.7%. Now, I know this, uh, we tend to look at the the top end of the healthcare sector. We have some great companies there, the Cochleas, the CSLs, the ResMeds. But um, some of the bottom end uh, pharma stocks, um, Scott Phillips, at the end of last year, really did start to take off as well. Is this a good sign for a micro cap like this in that sector? <laughs>
1: Mate, it certainly can't help, because if you look at their announcements, they've got more than enough cash, and they say to deliver the FY24 plans. Now, if you think about FY24, now being only about five and a half months left. Uh, they didn't say forever, they didn't say for 20, for 25, they said for FY24. If you're yeah. going to have to raise capital, I don't know whether I buy them will or not, but they are still bleeding cash. You're going to have to raise it, you really want a higher share price. So yeah, look, great news for these guys, if and when they go to the market and say, we'd like some more cash, please. Uh, if you were to be a little bit sceptical, not cynical, but sceptical, you look at the sales upgrade and say, okay, Again, if they're going to raise the money, this would be a perfect time to try and do it because the market's excited. They've announced some good news. Again, I'm not saying they will. I'm just saying think about it if you're going to because your share of the profits or profits when they eventually come will be diluted by whatever raising they make if they do it. Now, it's possible at some point they should tip into cash flow positivity. They're expecting their first monthly EBITDA positive month. Um, to come during the current financial year, but last quarter they went through about three quarters of a million dollars in cash. They've got about 2.1 million dollars left at the end of that quarter. So what's our last quarter show? I should say the September quarter, which they re- reported on. Since they haven't yet reported on the December quarter, so that's still to come. Uh, again, I, no, I'm not necessarily negative about am, but it's worth just keeping in mind um, the situation that it's in. But you're absolutely right. A higher share price is great if they are going to raise capital, or frankly, even if they were considering it, they're looking at the share price saying, well, gee, we weren't sure, but now, now we've got a chance. Investors are excited about us. If we need to kind of fatten up the coffers, this is a great time to do it. Wow. It's a really interesting space to be in, Koshi. This is um, a probiotic business, basically, and with all the folks on gut health, the, the old microbiome, uh, apparently linked to things like brain health and uh, increasing amounts of scientific belief. I won't say evidence necessarily, but certainly more in the scientific field saying, you know what, it kind of was all about the gut, the healthier our gut is, the healthier the rest of us tends to be. Um, if you are in that space and you can either have some significant evidence or just a general acceptance or, or belief in this, then it's a good place to be. It's also great to be small. You know, it's, it's re- on one hand really, really hard to get growth when you're a tiny business, no one knows, really hard to get going. But at some point, a little bit of growth on a very small base adds up and adds up and adds up. Now, they're talking about having $12 million in sales over a year. For a small business, that's great. Uh, but of course, it pales into insignificance compared to almost any other meaningfully large company on the ASX. So getting an extra million dollars in sales shouldn't be that hard if you have a product, if you have a market fit, if you have a consumer base. So I kind of like the idea of of Biome. I I wouldn't necessarily invest in it. It's still losing money. We don't yet know where the ceiling is in terms of profitability and sales. Every company finds eventually a maturity phase. If they get that far, uh, Biome not even making money, as I said. So still a while to go. Uh, But one to watch, and that sequential growth all you can ask if you're a small growing business is, hey, are you doing what you said you were going to do? Are you growing? Are you getting traction? The answers all seem to be yes on this one. So again, not not worth my money just yet, a little bit too early, but very hard to, to, mm. to say the company itself isn't doing a really, really good job of of growing, doing doing what it can uh, to be more successful. They're certainly ticking those boxes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... What do you reckon, uh, Daniel? Because everyone thinks, oh, could this be sort of a micro Blackmores sometime into the future? Mm-hmm. But reading behind Scott's comments then, you know, the share price has doubled in the last six weeks. Uh, we've seen this happen before, just before a raise. Uh, then everyone gets diluted and then the share price sort of drops back down again for an extended period of time. What's, what's your view on it?
2: Yeah, so I think Scott's covered it off well. The one thing I'd point out is that, you know, like you've mentioned, it's probably a bit more of a consumerist company, like a Blackmores, rather than a biotech. It's more of a a consumer product rather than something like a scientific base or something that needs to go through, you know, an approval system. So um, they're always interesting. It always comes back to brand value and how long it takes to build a brand that actually can generate, you know, above market returns over the long term. We know it takes a lot of time and a lot of investment. So um, you know, interesting company I've never really looked at it before but just from that view alone we know that there's going to be a lot of money required um product development and you know they're hitting that inflection point at the moment but I think that has about three million in cash at FY23 and um, and a little bit of debt on the balance sheet so I think you know it raises is to come very likely at the moment. So, for that reason alone, I'd probably prefer to be out of it. Um, right. Perhaps once the raise and the presentations come out, see what the strategy is, um, and then there could be a consideration there. But if the data's correct and the data providers, you know, we know that they're not always correct, I think it might be a 65 million market cap odd company at the moment. Which which seems excessive given you know it's 12 odd million in revenue. Yes, it's growing fast, but it is off a low base, uh, and yet to hit that profitability yet. So valuation also looks a little bit rich there.
0: So, so it's doubled in the last six weeks. If you're in it, you'd be more inclined to take money off the table, sort of take advantage of this spike up and, you know, maybe look to get back in sometime in the future if, uh, um, if, if the numbers look more solid on a longer term basis.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably what I'd be doing because we know that these companies, especially when they're in early stage, they can go through periods of high excitement. And there's one out there in the cannabis space called Vitura. And if you look at that share price relative to what the financials have done, you know, you, you would have thought, geez, I thought the share price would be significantly higher. The financials look good. But you go through those phases of early stage hype you know capital raise then perhaps a little bit of a slowdown etc so you do need to be a bit more active in these types of companies yep absolutely
0: all right let's get into a stock at the other end of the uh, scale in terms of size in real estate Uh, Scott Liz wants a view on domain the big property platform number two in the in the market to realestate.com major shareholder nine entertainment
1: And mate, honestly, in most of these two-sided markets, you, you wouldn't, you'd run a mile from the number two. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people try to take on car sales or seek and left between their tail between their legs. Really, really, really hard to do. Um, eBay back in the day, right? I mean, do you remember sold.com.au was the Australian yeah. New Zealand version of that? and. Of course, just couldn't couldn't hold their ground against these guys because these network effects tend, tend to be really really strong. The buyers go where the sellers are, so the sellers go where the buyers are, and it becomes this really really virtuous circle. Uh, eventually, the number one player makes a squillion dollars now. That's absolutely true, by the way, of realestate.com and, and we just mentioned Seek and car sales as well. Where real estate is a little bit different is the sheer dollar size, the dollar value of the product being transacted. In this case, of course, we know it's property with average prices being close to a million bucks in uh, Australia and much higher in some of the capital cities. The The reality is you're going to go where the customers are. Now, yes, most customers are at REA. The thing is that you don't want to necessarily leave the other what is it, 20, 25, 30% of customers and say, well, I'm only going to play in that top 70% of the market. Why? Because you only need one buyer from the other side of the, of, of the tracks who's going to pay an extra, what, 50 grand, 100 grand. Uh, the $1,000 or $2,000 it cost you to list is absolutely tiny in, in relative terms. So it is one of those situations, very, very, very rare situations where an online marketplace, the number two player is still very profitable, very successful, very worth Considering as an investment for exactly those reasons. It's never going to be number one in all probability, uh, but a very profitable number two is completely fine. So then it comes down to how much you're paying for that value. Now, at the moment, it's 36 or 38 times earnings, 1.8% dividend yield. Uh, and you've got to ask yourself okay, firstly, do I think the sector is worth investing in? And secondly, how much do I pay for a number two? I wouldn't want to pay as much as REA because it doesn't have the economies of scale, it doesn't have the ability to flex. That hard if has got twice as many listings, for example. And remember, of course, these well, they're they're independent uh, properties now. They're very much tied up with their parent companies, as you say. News, uh, sorry, uh, Domain part of part of Nine, uh, REA part of News Corp. And so where you've got those one paper towns, particularly those News Corp papers, you've got a much stronger presence of REA in the in the countries, uh, sorry, the cities where uh, where Fairfax was or Nine Newspapers now was more dominant. Uh, you've got a, a higher market share for, for domain. So you kind of look at that and say, where is the opportunity? I like both these businesses a lot. I, I think they are going to continue to be successful businesses for a very long time to come because, yes, there's two of them, but there's not a third, not a reasonable third anyway, and not a fourth, not a fifth. So both of them, if they're reasonably self, uh, you know, rational individually, there's no, no collusion going on. But if they both continue to raise prices and don't undercut each other unnecessarily, there's a lot of money to be made because again, the price of listing is so small compared to the price of the asset that's being transferred or potentially transferred being sold. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a no brainer to take part in it. So I like them both. I don't want to pay 38 times earnings though. I have to say um, I'm not a property market bear, but not a property market bull. Yes, there's some price power left despite what have been very, very significant price increases over time. Uh, so there's pricing power there for sure. I just think these guys are too mature to be paying 38 times earnings for. So I'd love to own these, mate, all all three. If you have all four, really, REA, Demo, Real Estate, Domain, uh, Seek, and Car Sales, they're all fantastic properties. Uh, I, I like them all. I'd like to own them all at the right price. I don't think Domain is cheap enough to buy, given the maturity of the housing market broadly and the housing network IE, right. REA, and domain.
0: Okay, but if you're in it, hold, worth it holding and hold on to
1: it. I think so, mate. You're probably in it for the right reasons. You've probably done pretty well, too, if you've been for a while. Yeah. Look, if you, if you bought it relatively recently, had no gains to speak of, I think there's better opportunities out there than paying 38 times for domain, uh, but I wouldn't be in a rush to sell it now. Yeah. Um, what do you reckon, Daniel?
2: Yeah, i probably disagree a little bit there and, and be a little bit more blunt. I, I, it does get thrown around that Domain's a, a high-quality business and a, and a great platform, but you know I'm not sure if I'd, I'd actually agree with that. If we look numerically at the financial statements and just qualitatively, if anyone's ever used the platform, I, I think it's just so inferior to REA. The only place perhaps where it is a little bit better than REA is, is on the rental market. I think it actually has a really good rental product, and you can actually see the rental um, prices over time where you can't on REA perhaps that's for a specific reason as well so uh, outside of that you know we look at we look at kind of the competition it has there and you know one thing i hate with domain is that you know it, it's always carried a, a big load of debt and it's always made acquisitions, and its revenue line has grown, but the profits and the cash flows, in particular, have never looked too good. And that's why it's the same share price it was when it listed, even though we know we've had an incredible housing market since. So um, you look at you know the pre-tax profitability. I know last year was a bit of a difficult year with listings, but 39 million pre-tax. You know they spent 30 million alone on software development costs, which are capitalized. And you know I would argue, are they getting a good return on that? that software capital cost you know it's not as if they're gaining market share um, it's not as if their product is superior to its competitor. so I think if you look at the free cash flow it's not too good I think you know the dividends that they pay is mainly funded by increases in debt as well um, it's not as if there's a lot of free cash coming out of this business so for the price you're paying for it you know, I think it's a bit overrated um, and I'd be happy to sell it and, and look for other opportunities in this market.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you uh, uh, we had that five-year chart and you made that comment, Daniel. I just brought up the REA one. It looks very different to Domain. Um, <laughs> it's it's actually had quite good growth over that time.
2: And I'll say, Christian, we we actually had this discussion when we talked about premium recently. I said. The second players and and the, I guess the lower quality players are always going to trade on a discount and there's always going to be the notion or the discussion that hey look there's a there's a discount gap that needs to be closed and therefore you yeah. know you, you'd benefit from that but um you know I think our view at, at Stock Doctor in my view personally is that you know you, you never really benefit over the long term from owning the poorer quality business because unless they can either gain market share or release new products or something along the line to differentiate themselves they'll always trade at a discount because you know that discount is warranted. Okay. They have they have higher costs of capital, higher costs of expense, lower margins, etc. Okay. So why should it trade at, at similar valuations?
0: All right. Talking about discount gaps. Uh, our next stock, um, Scott George <laughs> wants a view on Magellan uh, Financial, the the big fund manager. Uh, on the day that uh, GQG Partners, which, which is listed as well, um, announced. Um, is up 3% today, Magellan down 5%. Um, GQG pulled in an extra, what, $15 billion um, in funds under management last year. Magellan still had the out- outflows.
1: It is incredible, Koshi. And this is one of those businesses where... You know, we talk a lot about you know past performance, no guarantee, and that kind of stuff. Um, this is one where investors are voting with their feet. The, the the funds outflows, the the loss of belief, the lack of belief in Magellan is is. Yeah, tangible, we're literally seeing it's being expressed in dollars and cents in a way that only the stock market can, you know, uh, sometimes popular people or individuals or brands become more and less popular over time. In this case, you know, maybe they, they you see their sales disappear slightly, uh, you know, sequentially this one, you've got just cash absolutely in torrents out the door. Uh, you'd, you'd almost hope that it's getting closer to the end of the beginning, almost by definition, because they've lost so much under management over the last 12 months that the share price, performance, or lack thereof is, is atrocious. Uh, and it's one of those reminders, I think, that funds management should be a spectacularly good business. Uh, you have effectively a perfectly scalable company. You've got one CIO. You've got a couple mm. of portfolio managers and marketers. If you put an extra zero on your funds, uh, the costs don't need to go up that much. Now, there are some fractionalized costs. There are some where you're paying a service provider, for yeah. example, a proportion of, of the fund. But, but broadly speaking, you should be able to capture almost the entire upside. The problem is that leverage works both ways. And when your fund falls, you can't take costs out anywhere near fast enough to offset the loss of revenue from fees that comes with it. So it's, it's one of those businesses that ideally in theory, and as a sector, by the way, probably great, you know, the share market's what was it, 9.8% of your Lord's higher uh, last year than it was the year before. Your fund's already up across the sector by roughly that. Of course, some people yep. might be taking money out managing themselves, but it's a really, really attractive business as, as a group. The challenge is, if you just talked about there, those two, who knew that today GQG would come out with something positive, Now you can ride, ride the momentum, the fund momentum, and you say, well, okay, I'll just I'll ride that, that train and try and effectively time or trade the cyclicality of it. Maybe you can make some money doing it. I, I I have to say, as much as I liked Magellan as a brand, as much as I liked what what Hamish and Chris were doing in that business up until everything kind of fell apart, it's not enough, right? Because the strategy is only worth it at a funds management level if the investors believe in it, not the investors that own the shares, the ones who are investing in the funds themselves. And that's kind of the only thing that matters. No matter how good or otherwise the business is, no matter how quality, uh, how much quality, or, or there is in the brand, or how, how good the people are, if the investors don't want to throw the money, and the unit holders, the, the fund holders don't want to throw them the money, there's nothing they can mm. do about it. So you really are at the at the absolute mercy of those who'd be investing in the funds or the alternatives, as you've just said. Nine times earnings. You want to look at that and go, man, You know how much cheaper does it need to be before you buy? The thing is you could have said that and you should have saw that share price graph at any point over that period of time and said, how much worse can it get? The answer in the end was a lot worse. Yep. I, I, I want to like it. I think we all do. Brands have that cachet. At some point you say, well, maybe if they could just I think at this point, you've got to put that aside and say the investment market is incredibly fickle. Investors are incredibly fickle. Uh, If and when the starts to return, maybe you want to have another look. But again, you're kind of trying to ride that wave. You're trying to work out when they'll add money, how much they'll add, when they'll stop adding, when they'll start pulling money out. We've seen it with Platinum. We've seen it with Magellan. Um, Again, as a sector, really attractive, but it might be one of those situations where you want to be very, very careful. I don't know, I find it difficult, mate. I think you probably should sell Magellan shares right now because of that sheer unknown, despite how cheap it looks. I don't think you can look at that and say, well, obviously this or that, because Bum could still fall by half or three quarters Mm. and then half again um we just don't know where that where that train's going to stop how much loyalty there is among the the funds remaining unit holders so i, I think i'd probably have to sell not not with conviction not for long uh, you might want to have a look at it at some point but what is magellan what does magellan become without hamish at the at the at the chair you know in the chair Um, You know, how much cash out does it have, how fast or how quickly do the investors return? I don't think you know. And I think in that case, if you don't have a strong conviction on the future, you're probably best taking your money and going somewhere else. Okay, Um, Daniel, uh, lots of
0: talk in this sector that uh, Magellan might be better off somewhere else uh, as as a potential acquisition. Do you stay in a stock like Magellan on the hope that that could happen?
2: Uh, look, I don't think a takeover is really the reason why I'd be interested in Magellan. I think across the board, and there's two sectors where I've called out where it's been incredibly difficult, probably the worst performing sectors. It's it's um, it's it's asset managers and non bank lenders. Now. Those two sectors have underperformed so heavily that eventually someone's going to make a boatload of money out of them, but I just don't know when, and I don't know where, and I don't know how to do it. So it's difficult. But what I will say is that, interestingly, you know, you've had the the last month, they actually had a net inflow in, in institutional equities. Now, I'd probably say that's. A bit of a one-off. I'd like to see them repeat that success. Um, The vast majority of their fund base now, as we all know, is in the the existing retail client. So it's it's down a lot from 100 billion to 35. But the revenue isn't as impacted because you know they they pay a much higher fee than Insto. Um, Just on a pure asset view, like you've got a lot of money in in cash. You've obviously got the seed investments in Baron Joey, which you know no one probably knows how much it's actually worth. They don't they don't provide any disclosure at all. To be fair, Um, they reported on an equity accounted method so the value changes with their relative net profit or net loss attribution which you know probably isn't the best way to show the market value of what that stake would be i think it's actually relatively interesting. It, it almost reminds me a bit of Octopus Energy where we know we've got something valuable in this bigger business but no one really knows what it's worth. Um, so I can actually see kind of pockets of value and, and reasons why Magellan could do well. I mean, the performance in their um, in their global funds and, and infrastructure fund over one year relative to their benchmarks was actually not bad. So, you know, I, I probably wouldn't buy it at these levels but I think there is probably some signs of hope here and mm. what we saw uh, from David David George, when he came in, is that you know they actually took the steps and you know got rid of quite a few people and reduced that cost base. And at the last reporting period, you know the, the market actually rewarded them because they reduced costs to a greater extent than perhaps what everyone was expecting. So you know, I, I think I know he's been moved on now, but I think there is genuine reasons here, especially if you think equity markets have bottomed and we're in for a good market in 2024. You know, I'd probably be holding on to this mm, okay. um, and. Even looking at companies like I think Regal looks really interesting at current levels as well uh, from a high beta play.
1: Okay.
0: And are you positive about the market in 2024?
2: Look, we're probably not as positive. I think there's been a lot right. of uh, hype and a lot of um, almost FOMO in the last few months. Um, we need to see the trajectory of rates and and where that plays out. You know, I'm not sure if, if we're going to have six or seven cuts in the yeah. US like the market is expecting. So... We're not as positive, but certainly, you know, if you look at perhaps what the market is doing and you always got to account for the fact that you might be wrong as well. So, um, yeah, if you would have said we would have had the year that we had last year and still end up on the NASDAQ up like 30%, you know, you, you would have been, you probably would have been putting in an insane asylum. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you can never really predict these things. But I think no. the fund managers at the moment are an interesting way to play the market.
0: Okay. All right, our next stock, um, uh, Scott, and I, I love the names of ETFs. You know, I, I reckon there are so many great ones around. Um, Toby wants a view on the BetaShares Australian Dividend Harvester Fund. Now, that is a cracking name for an ETF to capture anyone that says, yep, I'm in the market for dividends and I'm am a I'm a yield investor. Does it deliver?
1: Mate, you're right. It's a fantastic name. The other thing that ETF writers are great at is is the actual ASX codes themselves. Yep. Uh the global cybersecurity ETF with the code HAC, yep. HACK, H A C K I think is also brilliant. There's there's plenty of them around and they do they do a pretty good job of it. Uh, the dividend harvester one is really fascinating, koshy, and it's kind of a microcosm of a weighted um, exposure, if you like, to most of the ASX 100, effectively driven by dividend yield, unsurprisingly. Yeah. So they say they pick from the top 100, 40 to 60 companies at any point in time, weighted towards the highest potential dividends, which I think is is perfectly fine. I want to just quickly, before we go too much further, those remind your viewers they changed their strategy in 2022. So when you look at the long term performance of the Harvester ETF, you've got to be very careful. Don't look anywhere before. I think it's. I think middle of 2022, they basically entirely changed the strategy. So yes, the same entity, it's the same name and code, but you can't necessarily look at the history and say, ah, over five years they've done this, therefore this is likely. They're only now about a year and a half into it. So it makes even benchmarking really, really difficult. And I say that because it's important. If you look at the, the, the dividend yield, it's very good. The last 12 months, 7.1%, 80% 7.1%, 80% franked, uh, which is a really, really good performance if you're just after dividends. The interesting thing is, though, since inception, that same ETF is up less than that in total. In other words, they've paid out more in dividends than the ETF is up. Now, yes, it's partly about the market price, but it also talks to the companies themselves. And I guess if you're going to do this, you just want to be really, really thoughtful and careful about what you're trying to achieve. Effectively, this is underperforming the market because – It's it's looking at those dividend-paying companies, which have also, at the same time, largely underperformed the market. Now, they've done better than most because a a full one-eighth of this fund is in Commonwealth Bank. Uh, which right. tells you exactly what's going on. Half of the ETF is in banks and miners, or financials and miners. So again, that's why I say it's a microcosm of the total market. You won't necessarily do as well in the good years because dividend-paying companies tend not to grow as quickly as non-dividend payers. Uh, Daniel's already talked about last year: the Nasdaq up 30%, the ASX up 10%. Uh, gives you a very good story of of what you know what drove the market in the US and why we're lagging meaningfully in in 2023. But if you are after dividends, you don't care about share prices, particularly. In other words, you don't care about the total return, you just want the money. Then harvester can be an interesting idea. It's also worth saying they pay the dividends monthly. Which is really unusual, and they do that obviously because they know, as you've already highlighted, they know their audience really, really well. They know yeah. what they're looking for, who they're looking for, and what those people want. Um, it, it's not. I, I'm I'm uncomfortable, mate, with the allocation. Honestly, with this with this ETF, I think uh, you know 25-30% in the banks, the other 25-30% in in miners. Uh, I, I don't love it from a diversification perspective. They say on the uh, on, on the fact sheet that they're, they're a diversified managed fund. I don't think you can make that argument when there's 50% in two sectors and one eighth of the of the fund in Commonwealth Bank. Um, if you wanted to do this, you're happy to run the uh, you know the wave of of asset prices, just take your dividend every month, not worry about it. I can't tell you to sell it. It's not a terrible investment. I don't think it's as diverse as it should be, particularly for someone in retirement. Um, you are relying on not only the the share prices but the dividend at the same time. So I, I'd be more diversified if I was in that boat. Um, I I don't know that maximum dividend is the only thing you should look at. If you get a big dividend but lose your capital, if you're happy with that, go for it. It's like an annuity to some degree, I suppose. Uh, But just be be a little bit careful you don't get blinded by the dividend yield and forget the other parts of investing like appropriate diversification and the, the asset price itself. Okay. Good point. Daniel?
2: Yeah, I, no, I think this is actually a, a pretty bad product, to be honest. I think it's effectively a dividend stripping strategy now. Um, so, you know, buying top 100 stocks before a dividend, receiving that dividend, stripping it, and then looking to sell it and kind of continue recycling that for dividends, um, which, as we know, effectively means that, you know, in a zero interest rate environment, when you need income, specifically if you're an SMSF looking for franked income, yeah, look, it could be useful. But um, in today's environment where you can get income where, uh, elsewhere at, at a good rate, potentially it's not going to be franked, but you know, you don't need to take on equity-like risk either, where this one's taking on equity-like risk but not really participating in any capital growth and paying 70 basis point management fee as well, I just think it's, it's just not a great product to be honest. I, okay. I think it's marketed well for an income investor in a certain environment, but um, I think there's better options out elsewhere. Okay.
0: All right. Um, Next stock, Amy wants a view. Daniel on Telstra, the uh, telco giant. Yeah, look.
2: Telstra's actually quite interesting. It, it, the market wasn't very happy when it announced that it wasn't going to go through with the, the infra fixed sale. Um, and since then, the stock's kind of been on a slide. But I actually think that's probably you know a very sensible thing to do for the long-term kind of viability of the business. So, the fixed InfraCo business in particular does about 20% of its EBITDA and like at 65% margin. So, it's obviously one of the better parts of the business. We know it had the, the tower sell down and um, investors were happy with that. It happened at a very good time for them when interest rates were very low they got a great price for it so you know the turnaround in telstra has kind of been happened um that was really driven by the change in the mobile market the mobile market really had no pricing growth you know for a very long time because the companies and the carriers were funded by kind of the MBN payments Mm. uh, and the the australian government payments so now that that's seriously on the wind down these companies are competing in a more rational sense and we've seen mobile price plans be rationalized and put up significantly so the the re-rate in Telstra has happened I still think it trades at a reasonable valuation Um, with the new CEO they also planned you know an extended build out um, of their fiber build out I think in in the regional areas as well which the market again didn't like because it was meant increasing capex but you know it's doing things for the long-term viability of the business and Telstra we know from a mobile point of View, you know, we know it has the best coverage, and therefore it can charge a bit of a premium for its prices. And it's the largest player, and has a lot of competitive advantages there. So I still think Telstra's, um, you know, a pretty good company. Trades it very reasonable valuations, around a 6% fully frank dividend. So I'd probably rather own this than the Harvest ETF if I'm looking for income, okay. to be fair. And we know that's going to give you, you know, low single-digit growth. A lot of its earnings now are quite annuity-like um, with those, you know, very small increases in its, in its fibre assets and its fixed line. So mobile market can be a little bit variable, same as the broadband, but it makes no money from broadband anyway. So uh, I think it's a little bit underappreciated. I'd actually buy it at these levels as hmm. well. Okay. Um,
0: Scott? a buy for you?
1: Kinda. (laughs) <laughs> uh, let, let me, I, I think I think Daniel's right about the income thing, by the way. I think, uh, by the way, uh, the, this Harvester Fund does own uh, 4% of its fund is in Telstra. Uh, so so it has some of that. I also own it myself because we own it in one of our income producing services, The Motley Fool. Although in my stock picking service, I don't, uh, it's not a recommendation. I think if I can kind of keep that, those three things in, in uh, your viewers' heads at the same time, I don't think this is a market beater. I think it's too expensive to beat the market from here. Uh, the yield is nice. The franking is lovely. The business is solid, as Daniel rightly said says, I don't think there's enough growth for it to beat the market from here out. But if you are in the market for income and you want a diversified part of your portfolio producing solid, reliable, dependable income that is fully franked, I think Telstra is great. And so how can those two things be true at the same time? It kind of depends on what sort of investor you are. If you're looking for total return. I don't think it's gonna beat the market on a total return basis, I wouldn't own it. If you want uh, to turn your portfolio into uh, an income producing portfolio, then having some in Telstra I think makes a heap of sense. If you're prepared to say, I'm not as worried about beating the market, I want reliable, dependable, ongoing tax-effective income, then it's a very, very different question that you're asking yourself. And again, if you can use those franking credits, particularly in a zero tax environment, like a SMSF in pension phase, um, then, it, then it's a very, very attractive way to, to generate some return. Uh, again, you could always, you know, invest in a growth portfolio and sell off small parts of that growth portfolio over time. But most people in their, in their retirement, as they want that income stream, don't really necessarily want to manage their portfolios day to day. Now, Osby's viewers probably do, frankly. Uh, so it's probably not a great stock for most Osby's viewers who want to go and maximize their total return. They enjoy investing. They like picking stocks. They want the challenge of trying to beat the market. It makes a heap of sense. Uh, but if you are looking for income, is uh, great. If you are trying to beat the market, I don't think it's going to do that. So. I don't know if I can have two views at the same time, Koshi. I think it's a, an absolute Monty for an income portfolio. Hmm. I wouldn't buy it at all if I was looking to try okay. and beat the market.
0: All right. Uh, Elliot wants a view, Scott, on John's Ling, the, uh, the building company. but a building company with a difference. It works for insurance companies for remedial work. And sort of if you make an insurance claim uh, on, on your property, John's Ling is likely to come and fix it up for you on behalf of the insurance company.
1: Yeah, mate, as uh, as your viewers may know, I've been going through that process myself for way longer than it should have taken, not with John's Ling, I'm happy to say, uh, with somebody else and an insurer that I won't name, but has uh, managed to botch the entire process. But it got finished before Christmas, so I'm a happy man It'll as work. I speak to you today. <laughs> I really like John's Ling, Koshi. I think this is a really, firstly, it's growing really nicely, right? And I think sometimes as analysts, we can be tempted to overthink these things. Uh, it's growing. It's doing a really good job. It's signing out more customers. It's doing more work, uh, which not always, but almost by definition, suggests it's doing something really, really right. And particularly for companies that we don't deal with individually, you talk about, you know, Blackmores before. You talk about Telstra, we're customers. We get the market. We're, you know, they're consumer-facing companies. John's Ling is effectively a B two B business. It does, of course, do work on behalf of consumers who are insured, but it's a B two B business. And so, if you don't necessarily deal with it directly, if you do, you might do it once. It's hard to draw a direct conclusion there. Rising sales is a very, very hard thing to argue against, as long as they're profitable sales. As long as they've got a bright future, as long as there's still runway for growth ahead, uh, sometimes arguing with the numbers is, is not a great idea. And these guys are doing a fantastic job. You mentioned that working for insurers, it's kind of a hidden part of the construction industry. And again, I've been through exactly that. The blizzard did my, my work. They were, they were you know, the, the insurer had a subcontractor who managed it, who then subcontracted the building work, who then subcontracted a bloke to come and you know, get those blowers onto the onto the concrete and dry the floors. And there's layers and layers of work here that you just don't see. You assume you're insured, someone comes and does the work, When you really go through it, you understand how much that is not hidden in a bad way, just not visible most of the time. Johnsling is making it really easy for insurers. What are they in the business of? Branding and underwriting effectively. The insurers have never done the work. And so if you can find a few large trusted partners with the systems and processes to do the work on your behalf, I think you're in a good place. Now, it's not cheap. It's 35 times earnings. The thing is, those earnings are growing really, really quickly. So um, again, it's a higher risk one because it is more expensive. But if you look at that growth story, unless it hits a ceiling soon, and it might, but I don't think it will, if it hits a ceiling soon, it's overpriced. If it can keep growing by doing more work for more insurers in more places, which I think it will, uh, I think you'll find this is one that has, has really good legs. So it's a buy for me. Okay. Daniel?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a really a polarizing sock and a polarizing company. If you do channel checks and you ask ten people what they think of John's Ling, it's the classic case where four will really love them, four will hate them, and, and two probably won't provide you an opinion. Um, and I think that stems from the fact that you know it is effectively like Scott mentioned, it's effectively like a network business. So the the main thing that's valuable about John's Ling is its positions on the insurance review panels. And every time that there's work um, to be ordered, you know it conducts a tender process, and uh, especially for the large catastrophe work. Links in Australia is, is viewed favorably upon because they have such a large network of tradies and subcontractors and they can deploy quickly. So, in some senses, I, I do think they have genuine advantages. Um, but it does come back to the fact that it, there can be risks in that model as well. And the way that they navigate some of those risks is they tend to conduct a partnership model. So, you know, it's not as if they're taking everything for themselves. They actually have. Um, kind of network-based or, or, or geographical-based partnerships where they partner directly with the tradies and have a bit of a profit share. So uh, I think that's a very smart way to run their business. But this, you know, to counteract that is you have to look at the financial statements at the bottom line because if you're purely looking at something like EBITDA, you're forgetting the fact that there's a large amount of minority interest here. So you know, you're not entitled mm-hmm. to all of that profit within the business. So just be careful with that because I've seen some people quote the valuation in that way on an EBITDA basis where I think It's a little bit you know, misguided uh, and perhaps a little bit promotional as well. So, my always biggest concern is is what they've done in the U.S. and they've they've made big acquisitions. And so far, you know, the, the the results have actually been you know relatively in line, if not a little bit better than expected. But I just fear the fact that you know consensus is always so positive on these types of expansions, and it is growing via acquisition. And you know, they're a small player in a big market. There, you know, that, that's just a bit of a risk for me. I, I like their Australian operations much more, uh, to be honest. So it's probably more of a hold for me. Um, The valuation does look expensive, but then uh, then again, I will add, you know, it's not your typical building company, so it it shouldn't be trading at something like 10 times earnings.
0: Okay. All right. Let's recap. First five stocks. Stock of the day, Biome on the upgrade of its revenue. Uh, sell from Daniel, a no from uh, Scott, uh, but uh, one to put on the watch list. It's probably a bit early in its development. Uh, domain, a no from Daniel, a hold from Scott Magellan. Um, a um, a hold from, uh, from Daniel, um, a sell from Scott. Uh, the dividend harvester, a no from both, um, not diverse enough for Scott in terms of its holding for income. Um, having said that, Telstra, if you're an income investor, would be attractive in Scott's view uh, rather than the Dividend Harvester Fund. But from a growth point of view, a no from Scott from an income, yes. Have a look at it. Uh, Daniel, a yes. And John's Ling, a yes from Scott and a hold from Daniel. Uh, here on the call, we've been tracking our own high conviction fantasy fund as picked by the Investment Committee, which uh, in December uh, got out of ResMed, and um, um, uh, sorry, uh, bought ResMed Car Group and Johnsling, uh, speaking of which, um, and uh, they replaced Wes Farmers, RPM Global and MA Financial. And the fund is up uh, almost 18%. Uh, this half hour, we're going to have a look at Elevate Uranium, LTR Pharma, Ampol, Carnarvon uh, Energy and Cooper Metals. Uh, we probably went a bit over on the first five stocks, but there are some good stocks to uh, to to look at. This half hour, these five stocks, we we need to be a bit quicker to run through. Scott Rusty wants a view on on. Ele- I've kicked off the uh, the new year being uh, being really nice. Uh saying, so let's speed it up. Um, Rusty, Rusty wants a view, Scott, on Elevate Uranium, um, um, sort of an explorer in Namibia and also Australia.
1: Uh, yeah, I love it, Koshy. And by the way, nice work doing on air, so we have to be quick. Otherwise, we look over and the side down. Thank you yep. very much. <laughs> uh, easy one on me for Elevate, mate. Hasn't made a dollar in nine years. Uh, there are plenty of uranium bulls out there who think nuclear is going to be the next great power, uh, replacing or instead of renewables coming out at the end of coal's life. I have no particular view on that, but you have to be right on that to make money on these sort of stocks because it continues to lose money. Uh, hope springs eternal. The share price, as you've seen there, is largely tracking uh, optimism, sentiment about uranium uh, far more than it is the actual businesses themselves. And fair enough, it should, because commodity prices are going to be, and commodity volumes, the only thing that matters here. Uh, the best run uranium miner will do terribly if prices stay low and demand falls. Uh, you can be a, a relatively ordinarily run one and do very well if the price and demand spike. Uh, I don't know what the future will hold. Uh, I think hope springs eternal uranium has been on the thing as long as I've been doing this job, mate. It hasn't yet come to fruition. There's a first time for everything. Maybe that time is now. There's no evidence for it. So it's pure speculation on that case. If I own the shares,
2: I would sell them. Daniel. Yeah, I'll keep it quick too. We've had some good views on uranium in pre, in previous episodes, so I might leave it there if someone wants to go back in here, perhaps my view there. But um, th- this company, yeah, it's, it's got multiple projects and they're all very early stage, 130 mil market cap. Across the board, the equities, I will say, the spot uranium price, to be fair, just keeps climbing higher and higher and higher. But the equities are pricing in significantly higher spot prices, which is a bit of a tongue twister, but effectively is saying that you know stocks are saying that the, the price will be significantly higher, which is always a risk in my view. If there's one uranium stock I'd like to own, if I had to own one, it'd probably be NextGen, which is a CDI on the ASX. It has an incredible deposit in the Arrow deposit. That's probably the only one I'd actually be interested in. The rest, I'd probably sell all of them, to be fair.
0: Yeah, and uh, it sort of reminds me of lithium about two and a half years ago doesn't it? so anyhow <laughs> yeah, exactly uh, yeah. da- daniel um ltr pharma is the next one on the list um uh it is in in men's health currently uh, commercializing a rapid onset uh, nasal spray
2: exactly to treat a, a very large market globally which is ed erectile dysfunction so it's 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 an interesting product but i will say it's it's got a long long way to go and Recent IPO and one of the few IPOs that actually opened above issue price, so perhaps there's something there. But you know, for our money, it's it's got a long way to go. It raised about seven million, which effectively means that it it won't be long before they need to raise again. So, um, you know, it's got a progress, it's got a long way to go, but it's going to compete with something where it's very hard to kind of justify doctors prescribing something else unless they're very very comfortable with it, given the yep. sensitivity of that of that issue as well. So, you know, I'd probably be happy if uh, if I participate in the IPO and I've almost doubled, I'd be happy to sell and move on and have uh, an yeah. hour for sure.
0: Yeah, a bit early. Um Scott.
1: Yeah, can't disagree, mate. Tiny company, $22 million market cap, couple of years of losses. Uh these are lotto ticket type type ideas. And I, I when I say that I feel like I'm being dismissive or some people perceive it that way. I don't mean it that way at all. All these bio almost all these biotechs, they try, they're trying to solve a problem, they right? they're normally normally run by scientists. With a discovery or an idea or a theory or something, they say, you know what? If we could do this and it could work, then this could be massive. And it's absolutely true. You know, the, the wonder drugs of the past, CSL itself, a cochlear itself as a, as a, as a technical entity. Mm. Um, you know, these are remarkable. When, when you get it right, you get it really, really, really right. Uh, the challenge is, to Daniel's point, you've got to get from here to there. You've got to get there faster, bigger, better, cheaper, with better distribution than everybody else. Uh, it is a business that tends to favor, actually, the better mousetraps. You know, the, the famous line about the, yeah, building better mousetraps is not enough. You've got to market it. People are going to want it. In this case, the t- the medical profession will end up gravitating towards the best solution as long as it passes those trials. But you are just miles away, and there is hundreds of people and hundreds of laboratories around the world trying to solve this problem in very different ways. One of them eventually will get it right. Uh, Viagra famously, of course, the, the big blue pill, the little blue pill, uh, they, they got it right first and biggest. Maybe there'll be another one. Maybe Maybe it is this company. Maybe it's not. It's incredibly, it's almost impossible to put odds on, frankly. It is speculation. Yep. You can speculate on the short-term share price. You can speculate on the odds that it might be the, the next big thing, but it's probably not going to be almost by definition. There are so many others out there. Um, it's needle in a haystack stuff. I don't own it. I wouldn't buy it. Um, if you made some money out of the IPO, as Daniel said, then great. Congratulate yourself and maybe take the money. Um, mm. There'll be true believers out there, the what-ifs, the maybe it doubles again, and it really could, um, but there's no... Fundamental substantial basis for believing yep. it will, other than hope, and that's not an investment strategy.
0: Yep, absolutely. You wish them well, but as yeah. an investment, it's all in the timing. Um, all right, Lexi wants a view, Scott, on Ampol, um, our biggest listed petroleum refiner and distributor uh, throughout Australia.
1: The past results have been astonishing. The the profitability, the growth in profit. Uh, this is a six percent dividend yield on trading eleven wow. times earnings, which ordinarily you'd say, well, what more do you want? The answer is uh, trying to work out whether or not this is a cyclical bump or a structural change. And only remaining refiner is an interesting. Interesting idea, Koshi, because there may well be. Uh, In the event, if we look back on this um, quasi-monopoly value in in being in that place, Uh, Ampol itself, as as a brand, going really heavily actually into EV charging, which I think is fascinating. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're really trying to own that kind of service station EV charging. Position. Now you'll never get it a whole a wholly, uh, but by getting there first, getting there quickly, attracting the early adopters, they're trying to hope to to move that dial meaningfully. Uh, There's one not far from me on on the Hume Highway, heading between Sydney and Canberra. Um, they've got charging stations. Must be eight or ten of them on each side of the Hume Highway. Uh, mostly full or foolish, a lot of the time in peak periods, of course, when there's no one there, there's no one there. But, um, you know, it's a really interesting change to their business. That is a fundamental challenge. I think this is where the Ampol shareholders need to be a little bit careful. We will always use oil in some way, shape or form, increasing in niche. Uh, applications, the transport fleet will become more and more electrified over time. And a little bit like retail in general, the unit economics really matter because if you start to see a small drop off in volumes, you can't change your fixed costs, in this case, rent, uh, you know, electricity, staff, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't take all that much on these really, really tiny margins uh, to to really move the dial. And so uh, a bit like a bad retailer, if, if the, the petrol refining and, and distribution starts to fall off, what do you do with volumes to kind of make it back? So, there's a real existential risk for these guys. And I think it's really worth noting. So, existential risk, cyclical risk, probably too rich for my blood, mate. I'd rather buy, I kind of started by talking about being a little bit contrarian sometimes. I'd rather buy this one when everyone hates it than everyone loves it because I just think there is too much potential risk and cyclicality at the current share price and the current mm. market environment. I'd, I'd, I'd probably sell, if you've, if you've done really well with the graphic yeah. show before. Done remarkably well. I think I'd probably take the money and run.
0: Yeah, yeah. Five year high, Daniel. Would you take the money and run?
2: Yeah. Well, I've been saying that for probably the last twelve months and been wrong every time. To be <laughs> fair, so. But th- that—that's the big thing, yo. It's because everyone understands that the refining part, particularly, like I think pre-COVID. But what, what was the average? Like six dollars a barrel, seven dollars a barrel U.S. At one point, I think they're doing close to thirty. Now they're back to around nineteen after falling for a bit towards twelve. So that cyclicality in refiner margins will will tell you The story for Ampol wasn't um, too long ago before they needed government assistance at its refineries because they're operating at a loss. Now they're literally making hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter. So um, from my point of view, yes, things are actually going quite well. And if you look at management commentary, I mean, of course, they're going to say that the market looks like it's going to stay higher for longer. Therefore, it should be worth more. But but Scott's actually said something interesting. They've doubled down and made a lot of acquisitions in the fuel and, and convenience space. And we've seen Viva do the same thing. Um, recently, they announced that the big deal with um uh, on the run which you know you 'd be yep. quite familiar with yeah. um, in, in south, south Australia, australiashi so they 're doubling down heavily in this market you know perhaps. That, that's them trying to find the way to reinvest the, the significant profits they've had. There's so many. There's only so many special dividends Empol can pay and they've paid a lot of them <laughs> over the last kind of year or so. So I'd, I'd be in the camp too of looking to take profits because um, we actually saw some weakness in the convenience businesses as well, mainly due to volume. So people obviously feeling the pinch a bit more and they're trying to travel less to make up for that 6%, I think, year-on-year decline in volumes, which isn't very good. And the last thing I'll say, and we saw this in the supermarkets as well is what's going on in the tobacco market you know that, that was previously a big portion of revenue and, and profitability for these companies um and effectively since the the rise of the vape in australia we've seen a big hmm. turn away from, from traditional um tobacco kind of products as well so will that yeah. be a bit of an impact for them going forward that no one's really talking about yes. there's something to consider there as well because they have invested quite heavily in this area
0: yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, and let's finish off with uh, two explorers. Uh, Daniel Lynn wants a view on Carnarvon Energy uh, in the oil and gas area um, on Western Australia's northwest shelf.
2: Yeah, so uh, I think I spoke about this one in July. Earlier on, I went back and looked and it's very interesting because it, it has a minority interest in the Dorado project, which, you know, if you follow Santos, you'd be aware of. Yep. Um, the issue is that, you know, it's Dorado for Santos is very far down on the priority list now. So FID keeps getting pushed back and back and back and that's been a detriment to Carnivan. Now, they've actually done some smart things. They've sold down an interest to a Taiwanese company and they've got a carried forward kind of capex spend as well. So in terms of cash that they hold and you know the investment that they have um, other people to make for them. it's looked really cheap. And I called it a spec buy back then just to see the share price, you know, effectively get crushed 40% mm-hmm. before we had some activists step in in, in Nero and, and Collins Street Value Fund to a, you know, quite renowned in, in the small cap resource space. So I think now that we've had a bit of activist exposure, it's actually quite interesting. Again, if if you know you, you bought at that time, I'd still hold it. Um, I think the the Dorado project is actually a really good project. It's just perhaps mm. not in the portfolio of santos because they have the alaskan assets that they're going to invest in from the oil search merger they have obviously barossa which is probably on their priority list now at the moment in terms of offshore oil and gas so um i actually think it's probably one of the more interesting plays in the market still very very speculative though but there is something there to it yeah. i think
0: interesting as you say uh last six months it's had a really good run scott
2: yeah, I
1: think Daniel's covered it beautifully. Actually, the detail there was was fantastic. Uh, I'll pick up on his last on his last uh, few words, which is speculative, but maybe there's something there. I think it's absolutely true. Uh, Four hundred million dollars for that opportunity—too rich for my blood, mate. So uh, I, I'm not a big speculator in general. I'm certainly not a, a big speculator in resources either. So uh, personally, the way I invest, the approach I take. I'd sell the shares, particularly after that nice little recovery. If you own them longer, you're probably still sitting on some big losses. But uh, I'd, be, I'd be pretty happy to count my uh, count my winnings over the last couple mm. of months and uh, take the money and go.
0: Okay. And Scott, the final stock, David, wants a view on Cooper Metals. Um, it's um, exploring the copper and gold deposits in Queensland and Western Australia.
1: I'd like to bring something new to the table, Koshi, but I can't really. this is another lotto ticket business twenty four million dollar market cap, two years of two financial years of losses. Uh, this is one of those strike it rich uh, you know corporate a corporate gold fossica. Uh, fine, there's nothing wrong with that at all, as I said. someone's got to do it. Someone's has got to find the gold. Every big discovery's been discovered by someone who found something when someone else didn't. Uh, so you know they're out there doing their work. The shareholders know exactly what they're getting uh, for the for the privilege uh, or otherwise it's a it's a it's a you know perfectly fine. Um, company doing its thing uh, trying desperately to find something out there i don't think you can handicap the odds mate so you're in a lot of ticket territory again if you want to do this maybe grab a basket of these guys to give yourself some sort of chance uh the chance the odds that you're going to pick the one uh, yeah. that strikes it rich is really really small most will raise a heap of capital dilute massively and then most won't find anything even after that so i would sell if i own the shares
0: okay and uh, uh, daniel it's tripled in price in the last uh six weeks of of last year? Would you uh, continue to ride it?
2: Yeah, look, they've actually hit some pretty interesting hits, and in their main projects in Mount Isa. And if you know anyone's followed base metals or mining in Australia, you know Mount Isa is a very kind of historic and important district yeah. uh, in Australian resources. So good to see that they're off to you know really interesting hits. And the management team, I had a quick look, quite interesting. You know, pretty esteemed um, ge- geologists on this team as well. So perhaps something to follow. But it's just far too early. I mean, you know, we've had effectively maybe two. Um, pretty significant hits at a, at a decent grade as well, like 2%, 3% copper grades, which, you know, it's no de grossa, but it's, it's, it's better than what we're used to seeing. We're used to seeing probably 1% to 2% at best in recent times. So something potentially interesting, but, you know, if I owned this, I probably would have um, sold a bit if I owned it at lower prices and just continue to follow on um, at a distance because it's still very, very far away.
0: Okay, so take some profits if you've had the run up
2: take some profits because we know how these things go they have discovery you know there's excitement and i guess unless you're in wa lithium where it's literally <laughs> been vertical um due to the mna activity uh we know that these things you know go through a bit of an exploration phase yeah. where things dip off they have no news flow things go down and then it starts up again so just just take a little bit of risk off the table okay. i think
0: all right scott phillips thank you so much for kicking off 2024 for us look forward to catching up again soon appreciate your time
1: crawl forward to it. Good
0: Thanks, you, Koshi. Thanks, Daniel. Daniel Ortizzi, uh enjoy the peninsula. body to peninsula. <laughs> uh, are you off to the Sorrento pub or the Porty pub for lunch, uh, late lunch now?
2: Uh, not at the moment. It's still raining heavily, hopefully oh, tomorrow night. Nice one. There's a, right. there's a few AFL players up here, Koshi, so I've got to keep an eye on them for you, mate. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> Do that. Uh, give us all the goss. How are they looking? All right, guys. Thank you for that. Catch you soon. <laughs> Uh, now let's recap the uh, the final five stocks. Elevate, um, a sell from uh, from Scott and O from Daniel, the only uranium stock he's interested in is is Next Gen. He quite likes that. Um, LTR a sell from both. Um Ampole, a sell, take some profits from both. That's had a really good run-up. Carnarvon, uh, kind of a hole from Daniel, a sell from uh, from Scott. And likewise with uh, Cooper Metals, it's had a really good six weeks, and both would are saying take some profits there. Uh, look, if you've got any stocks you want me to put to our expert panel, go to ausbiz.co slash callpicks or tweet us using the at ausbiz TV handle on X. And uh, we'll have um, a lot more of the call tomorrow, midday. Um, Australian Eastern Daylight Time is when we kick off every day and we do another 10 stocks plus stock of the day tomorrow. Stick around. The Pulse is next on (laughs) Auspice.